Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles one final time to the seventh chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be looking together this morning at the closing verses of chapter 7, beginning with verse 51 and reading through verse 60. So for those of you who are like, will Steve ever get through Acts chapter 7? Today is the day I will attempt to get through it. Chapter 7, 51 through 60, you can find that passage either on page 1077 in your Bibles or beginning on the bottom of page 40 in your Acts journals. While you're making your way there, allow me to just quickly remind you of where we are and our look together at what really amounts to a reversal of the charges here in Stephen's speech. He has made a very thorough case against the understanding, or I should say the misunderstanding, that is of the things of God that these men that make up the Sanhedrin really possess. They do not understand the things of God. In fact, the very things that they have charged Stephen with are truly pronouncing judgment upon themselves. It is they who dishonor Moses the law, and the temple. And this morning, Stephen's going to pronounce some prophet of old, thus saith the Lord, kind of judgment against them because of it. Remember, he's painted a very vivid, very detailed portrait here of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness in this speech. And he's made the point repeatedly that they, these men of the Sanhedrin, did not understand at all their own sacred history and what it was that was driving it. They had taken the shadows of what was to come for the end all of all things. They were, of course, not the end, but in a sense, they were the beginning. And these men had taken the shadows of the law over the substance standing behind them. They had made idols of the shadows. They were idolaters, according to Stephen. And last week we looked at the end of his case against them, considering the temple in verses 44 through 50. And in looking at that, we asked three questions of the text. The first question was, what has God clearly said regarding these things? What has God said? What has God revealed to his people Israel? Well, Stephen said, before we can even begin to dig into the temple, we really need to see and to remember what God indeed had said at the very beginning of his organized and ordained house of worship, which was not the temple in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle in the wilderness. God had instructed Moses to make it, that is the tabernacle, according to the pattern that was given to him on Sinai. And it was a very detailed, very intricate pattern. God gave Moses the design, the colors. He gave him instructions regarding the ornate weaving of beautiful threads that would make up the curtains. He told him of the intricacies of the inner and the outer courts. He even gave him the exact dimensions of everything involved. Even the implements of the tabernacle or the tools were described in very precise, very exquisite detail. 
Nothing was left out. And the tabernacle proper or the inner court itself was to be divided according to God into two parts. The first part of the temple proper, the tabernacle proper, was where the lampstand and the table and the showbread were. And the second part was the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. And a great veil was to separate the two parts so that the holy of holies was only seen by the great high priest and him only one day a year on the day of atonement. And into the holy of holies were the golden censer and the ark of the covenant which contained the golden jar of manna and Aaron's staff which had budded in the tablets of the law. We're told the ark was overlaid and entirely in gold on every side. And the covering of the ark was the mercy seat with the cherubim. And all of it, that is the entirety of the tabernacle, was designed with a very specific purpose in mind. Of course, first and foremost, it was where worship took place. Prayers were offered there. Sacrifices were made there. But its design went beyond just that. I told you last week the tabernacle was designed to be transitory. It was not meant to stay in one place. It was designed by God himself to be moved wherever God led his people. And so it not only went with the people of God to the various spots throughout the wilderness during their 40 years of wandering, but it went with the people into the land of Canaan when they received the land that had been promised to their fathers. The point is, beloved, by by God's design, it moved. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it was never meant to be the end. It was never meant to just be simply copied and made permanent. It was man, specifically it was King David, that asked God if he could build a place of permanence for God. We talked about it last week. God said no to David, but he allowed his son Solomon to build it. But it was never meant to be the end all of Israel's worship. It was a shadow of what was to come. It was an earthly picture of the heavenly sanctuary where the Christ would go with his own righteous blood and make the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Its design was to lead them in anticipating the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But Israel never got that far in God's progressive revelation. I explained it last week. We see much more clearly now on this side of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But Israel never moved forward from the shadow to the substance, from the sign to the thing signified. And so the sad truth is they never saw King Jesus at all. 
Rather, they were content to make idols of the shadows and cease moving towards anything else at all. They stopped far, far short of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed for the redemption of fallen man. They missed it. And these men of the Sanhedrin missed even more than their fathers had. Undoubtedly, they well knew what had transpired at that moment when Jesus died. When he breathed his physical last, his last breath, hanging upon the cross. What happened? Well, we're told in the temple the veil of separation was torn in two. Throwing open the way to the throne of the mercy of God represented on the other side of that veil. The tabernacle was never meant to be the end. The temple was never meant to be the end. They were but doors on the path to the substance behind the shadows. Our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And so Stephen pointed out to them the foolishness of ever thinking that man could ever build anything that could somehow confine God. He dwells not in houses made with hands which he created. He dwells with his people. And he always has. Stephen said, you think God wants a house made with men's hands? Look above you. The heavens are his throne. The earth is but his footstool. What house could you ever build for him? And the sad truth is, beloved, the people wanted him confined. They wanted the building much more than they wanted his presence. And it has been that way since the fall. When Adam and Eve, in their newly sinful state, heard God in the garden, what did they do? They hid themselves. They were afraid of what he would say and what he would do. They no longer desired to be in his presence. And the point Stephen is making that they, these men and their fathers, wanted idols because they wanted God's silence not his words. They hated his words. They wanted autonomy, not peace. So they flew to dumb idols without mouths to speak. They wanted religion like the nations around them, but they only wanted it externally, on their terms, not internally. They wanted to visit God's temple, but not to stay. And Stephen says to them, God revealed to you the Christ. The culmination of all these things. And you killed him. God revealed Jesus Christ and his people rejected him. And what are we to do with that information? Well, I mentioned to you last week just a couple of things. We must first off never underestimate the bent of our own hearts to make idols to take the place of God. We must move swiftly from the shadows to their substance, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we must bow and worship Him and Him alone. 
We must live there in his presence. We must find our purpose, our lives, and our peace entirely in Jesus. Nothing should ever take the place of preeminence to him. And in Stephen, in this text before us this morning, we get a very glorious and beautiful picture of what that looks like. So if you've not already done so, turn with me now to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts and follow along as I read from the holy and errant and infallible word of our Lord, verses 51 through 60. Hear now the word of our Lord. Stephen at the end of his speech says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us clarity, that through the power of your spirit, you would take away those things that distract us, that we would give our undivided attention to your word so that hearing your word through the power of your Holy Spirit we might be transformed by that word more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you last week, Stephen has sort of picked up the pace here a bit now as he has recounted Israel's much less than glorious record of following the God who is. And as that progression builds and builds and builds, it truly reaches a crescendo of sorts this morning here in this scathing rebuke, which will signal the end of his judgment, which of course is God's judgment against them, not Stephen. And in considering that rebuke this morning that will lead to Stephen's martyrdom, I want us to consider three final questions of the text before us. And they're not new questions. First, what are idolaters from the text? Second, I want us to see what idolaters do. And finally, I want for us to see what true worship consists of or what true worship looks like. First, what are idolaters? 
Now, certainly I am not unaware that there is a sense here where we could make the case that Stephen has been making this very point from the very beginning of his answer to these charges that have been leveled against him by the men of the Sanhedrin. But specifically this morning, I want us to see it as Stephen describes it in his rebuke of these men. He says to them, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ouch. Let's unpack it a little bit. What does it mean to be stiff-necked? Well, to begin with, this would have been a very derogatory description to these men of the Sanhedrin. Think of what Jesus said to the Pharisees that we just read in Matthew 23 just a moment ago. He said, you know, the Pharisees said, well, if we had been there with our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the uh, shedding of the blood of the prophets. They believed they were fine. In fact, they believed they were better, better than their fathers by far. And they were not. They, like their fathers, were stiff-necked. It was the charge that God himself had brought against his people on more than one occasion. The example that Stephen is pointing towards here with this harsh rebuke and a very fitting one at that is more than likely Almighty God's response to the incident of the golden calf recorded in Deuteronomy 32. Beginning in verse 7, in response to the wickedness of the people in making an idol to worship in the place of God. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of course we know what happened. Moses interceded, but... The truth is many were killed both by the sword and plague that resulted from that sin. Stiff-necked people. Do you get the reference, beloved? They look one way and one way only. They do not turn. They certainly do not bow their heads. They do not look to the left or the right. Their obedience is confined to their one way of doing it. They are stiff-necked. They rewrite the rules. And they will not even hear the word of God coming to them from his prophets if it's contrary to what they believe because what they believe is what they want to believe. They are stiff-necked. They want idols, not the God who is. So they desire to face an idol and not God. They are stiff-necked. They will not listen. They will not bow. 
He says they are also uncircumcised in heart and ears. Certainly an offense to any Jewish person, let alone leaders in Israel. I cannot help but to think of Paul reciting his own unmatched Jewish credentials in order to show the unworthiness or what he calls the foolishness of them in 2 Corinthians 11. It's that passage we've talked about before, right? Are they Hebrews? Me much more? Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin? Circumcision is what tied them to the covenant and their father Abraham. It was the mark born by the children of God. It marked them as God's own people and it separated them from their pagan neighbors. And one did not question such a thing as circumcision. But Stephen is going well beyond questioning their physical circumcision. He's accusing them of not understanding circumcision at all. Do you see that? This list of their heritage that Stephen has told them they truly know nothing about is growing. And so is the rage of the Sanhedrin. God wants more than their physical circumcision. He wants a circumcision of the heart. He wants the internal change that the sign signifies. He wants those who trust Jesus Christ, his person, his work by faith, faith that is God's to give. He wants hearts and lives that have been transformed by his own gracious provision of the good news of the gospel. He wants people who are celebrating that they have been made perfectly righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. God certainly does not want the shadow that they have made yet another idol of. Beloved, do you see it here? Because it carries over with us. God does not want you or I to be content to offer him the mere externals of Christianity. You know, we looked at it earlier in our look at Acts, that discourse between good old Uncle Screwtape and a superior demon with his nephew and underling Wormwood from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Do you remember that conversation at all? Wormwood was very, very concerned that his charge was now going to church. What did Screwtape tell him? He told him that simply going to church and participating in the externals of religion really were not a problem. In fact, he said quite often it helped their cause more than it hurt. We just do not want these things going to his heart. Do you understand? Do you see the dangers of external religion that has nothing to do with who God has revealed you to be or who God has revealed himself to be? It's not enough that you're here this morning or that you've been here for generations. It's not enough. 
It's not enough that you've given of your money, your time, your sacrifices, your sweat. It's not enough that most people in the community believe that you are a good guy or a nice lady. It's not enough. God wants your life to be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit because of who Jesus is and what He has done and what He is still doing right now on your behalf. He doesn't want your temples or your buildings or your trinkets. He wants your heart. God dwells with his people. You understand what that means? I'm saying, you are the temple now. <laughs> he doesn't want your dedication and your sacrifice. He wants your life and he wants all of it. And he will have it. Because he's God. And by the grace of God, we belong to him in Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you see what a great blessing that is today? And he also says that God wants their ears to hear. They have uncircumcised ears. They need ears that truly hear, that have been unstopped by the Holy Spirit. Ears that move from hearing to doing. Towards a desire for loving God and neighbor because of hearing who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit alone allows the children of God to hear His words and to love His words and to live in His words. God wants more than just the surfaces of things. Beloved, do you hear Him this morning? Because the truth is, the Word of God says, the gospel transforms the whole man. And sets him up for a lifetime of grateful, joyful, fulfilling service. Never grudgingly going through the motions. That's never life in the kingdom. Stephen is telling them their God is nowhere big enough to be the God who is. And there's more. He's still not quite done with them. He says... They always resist the Holy Spirit, just like their fathers. The gospel comes to them from the mouth of Jesus, the Messiah, and they are enraged. They resist it because they do not want to hear it. They do not desire it. They are sensual beasts, and they live for their flesh. They hate it. And you notice here that Stephen is no longer saying, like our fathers. Did you catch that? He said that before. But now he's saying, your fathers. They resist the Holy Spirit like your fathers did. Your fathers. They're no longer the same. They were all the children of Abraham in the physical sense. But now Stephen is differentiating between physical and what truly matters. 
All who have God as their father through Jesus Christ, the promised seed, they are the true children of Abraham. Whatever physical lineage of these men may, whatever their physical lineage may be, Stephen says, your fathers are idols. My father is almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. The God, the God who is. And it leads right into the second thing here. Because this is what idolaters do. They reject the words of God. They reject the words of God. They resist the Holy Spirit of God. They reject the prophets of God. They reject the Son of God, God incarnate. They reject the true people of God. And they always have. And they killed the prophets. They killed those who spoke of Jesus. And in doing it, they missed that Jesus Christ was the righteous one. The just one here in the New King James. The long-awaited Messiah. The Christ. The culmination of the law. The, one who ever, the only one who ever came in flesh and kept every jot, every tittle, every line of the holy law of God. The only one who was perfectly righteous. They killed him. Because idolaters do not want a righteous one. They want a silent one. Beloved, there's a sobering warning here, isn't there? Do we still seek God's silence? Is idolatry alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ? You're like, well, if it wasn't, Steve wouldn't be yelling so much, right? It's alive and well. We do it when we ignore God's word. We know what it says, but we, we look the other way. We are talking about it this morning, Randy and Guy and, and myself, our culture is inventing new ways to do it every day. Has God really said that this sin is worthy of punishment? Certainly not anymore, right? We're not barbaric. Beloved, listen to me. Idolaters want not God's grace. They want His silence. It's done when we ignore conscience. Right? Just a little look, just a little piece, a little sip. God, God won't mind. If he does, we desire his silence, not more holy and perfect words. Right? That's what sin does. It questions God's words as a means of invalidating them and eventually hoping that they just go away. They won't. They are eternal. Does that convict you this morning? Does it trouble your conscience to see these wicked tendencies in your own heart? Does it make you angry to have your sin poked at constantly? Guy is saying, yes, it, it makes me angry. We'll talk after the service, right? It certainly made these men angry. They were enraged. 
They were moved in their sin to hate God's words even more. And they hated the ones speaking them. They had murder raging in their stony, dead hearts. But is that the only response? Praise God. By the grace of God, we can say from the text this morning, a hearty, no way, may it never be, do not even say such a thing. Beloved, if you are convicted this morning, then by the grace of God, cry out to God to transform you like he did Stephen, as well as others in this violent mob. By the grace of God this morning, look with me at the third and final thing here, as this precious fellow believer is ushered into the glorious presence of his Savior and highly exalted King. These men of the Sanhedrin could stand no more of the words of God coming from the mouth of his disciple. And Luke graphically captures their rage that brewed to a fever pitch with this description of them in their anger, gnashing at them with with their teeth like dogs. But Stephen, he is a real contrast to their rage even as he is being unlawfully murdered by these men. I want you to understand this is an unlawful thing that's going on here. They did not have the right to execute anyone. Even if they were truly guilty. But they have murder in their hearts. And as Stephen himself has said, they do not obey the law anyway. Stephen looks up and he's taken back with what his eyes see. Luke tells us that he, being full of the Holy Spirit of God, certainly saw what the flesh, ruling the flesh, will never see. He saw with his eyes what he had been telling these men that they had missed all along. He saw the culmination of the promise. He saw the culmination of the law. He saw the purpose of the temple. He saw the culmination of everything Moses said and did as he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. And he cries out to them, Look, the heavens are opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Beloved, I want you to understand this this morning. Please do not think foolishly as others do that Stephen was merely shooting things up the scale, turning up the heat on these men. That he's merely adding insult to injury here. That he's just egging these men on. What Stephen is doing is making a glorious confession. This is validation as Stephen sees the fullness of what he has been telling these men that they and their fathers have missed. This is the whole point of Christianity. The risen king is reigning at the right hand of God. Stephen is vindicated and put entirely at peace as he sees with his own eyes the full, glorious culmination of the promise of God. The exalted king. 
Jesus standing to receive his servant into glory. It heaps up more condemnation upon these men to be sure, but beloved, do you see the glorious, wonderful hope in it this morning? Maybe you're asking yourself, how do you know this was the peace that passes all understanding here, speaking and not just more aggravating words being hurled at these men out of anger and spite on the part of Stephen? Because clearly, Stephen is ready to die with a smile on his face. His king is standing up waiting to receive him. Do you see it? For Stephen, this whole thing is not a tragedy. This is not a matter of someone being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is not a good one who died far too young. This is a servant of the king receiving the embrace of his life. This is not the end for Stephen, but the beginning of eternity with his glorious, wonderful, merciful, loving, exalted king. He's receiving his reward. He's being ushered into the everlasting arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's laying down what is mortal to put on what is immortal. Do you see it? And does it make your heart swell with hope this morning? Because, beloved, it must. There's something else we need to remember here. Stephen Stephen has preached the gospel. And the gospel is doing its work. Do you see that? Separating sheep from goats. Condemning some and saving others by the grace of God. And you say, who besides Stephen is being saved here? Not all who are standing here in this violent mob this day hearing this, are condemned to their fiery judgment in hell, are they? Because there is a wicked man holding the coats of stone-cold killers here that will never forget this day. Because there is a day coming soon when he, like Stephen, will hear through the power of the Spirit the words of God and the gospel, and he will never, ever be the same. And neither will the world. He will be filled with the Spirit, and he will change the world through the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the precious truth of the gospel to hearts through his proclamation of it. I think we have to say here, He is an answer to Stephen's prayer as he breathes his last. Lord, receive my spirit. Do not charge them with this sin. Give them ears. Circumcise their hearts. Make them embrace your spirit. Fill them with the fullness of your spirit. 
And it's from this fertile ground that the church of Jesus Christ will receive the Apostle Paul. And the message of the gospel will go forth into a dark, desperate, dead world that desperately needs to hear it. As Jews and Gentiles alike will be called to the kingdom of the resurrected and reigning king. Beloved, do you see the joy that we have been given in being called to worship King Jesus? Amen? Let's pray.